Amen. This morning I want to continue speaking on the fourth church of the letters that Jesus wrote uh, in the book of Revelation. And um, this, this fourth letter is written to the church of Thyatira. Now, we've gone through three churches already, and we notice that when Jesus gives an address, he gives us good and bad, doesn't he? And that's good, isn't it? Isn't it good that we see us for what we really are and Jesus sees us? We've already talked about how Jesus sees us. But it's good that we see the fact that we have the good and we have the things that need to be improved upon. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with knowing that we have work to do in our hearts and our lives. And it's good that we recognize that. And, and that's the importance of these letters, is that these letters would give us some truth. And they would give us the way God sees us, the way he loves us, the way he appreciates what we do for him, and then also the areas that we need to improve on a little bit so that we can be fully pleasing to the Lord. So this morning we're going to talk about this letter to the church of Thyatira. It's uh, talked about in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. So you can either turn in your Bible, or you can look on that handout we gave you, um, and we're go- we'll read through that and see what Jesus says to this church, and then we'll talk about it. Beginning at verse 18 in chapter 2, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on any other burden on you except to hold on to what you, ought, what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule, with them, will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for this letter. And God, now I pray that you would give us the ability to discern what it says to us. Help us to be able to understand what the writer originally intended. Help us to be able to take this literally, to understand clearly what John the Revelator had in his heart for this church. And God, I pray that you give us the proper interpretation and the proper discernment for what it means to us today. Because we know that you are never changing and we are never, uh, never, you are always the same. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can look, flip it over on the other side of your paper, and you can kind of see the outline of how we're going to address this as we go through, as Jesus goes through all the churches, he goes through certain areas, so um, certain uh, steps in how he addresses these particular churches. We see that this is, again, written to the angel of the church in Thyatira. The angel is the church leader, or it's the church, basically. It's, it's the whole church, the spirit of the church. 
Thyatira, Thyatira was the smallest of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to, but yet it was still an important trade center. Being on the trade route, it was still important to the society, important to the uh, economy of the time. There wasn't much recorded there as far as uh, mass persecution of the church, but yet we will see that consistent with today, each individual believer had their own cross to bear. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. That's just being a Christian today. You're going to have persecution in your own life, and, and we'll, we're going to see a little bit of that there, but this wasn't an overall persecuted church like we read about earlier in one of the other churches. Um, we will find that the Thyatira had many active trade guilds or basically labor unions. They were a, an industrial city, like a blue-collar city in some, some regard. They were a manufacturer of a purple dye, and they made purple cloth with it, which was very important to the time. So therefore, they were the prime maker of this particular fabric. And, uh, and it was important. Purple, as we know, was the color of royalty. And uh, they were being a purple manufacturer, a dye maker. They were important to Rome. They were important because of the, what they produced. And uh, we also have that it was, um, we read in the book of Acts, that Paul had dealings with a, a, a businesswoman there named Lydia. And uh, Lydia came from this city, and she was a seller of purple cloth. And apparently she did quite well for herself because she was relatively wealthy. She had a home there. She also had an home in Ephesus and a couple other places around that area that we know of. But with, we read an interesting thing. In, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it talks about Lydia being a good woman, but not necessarily a godly woman. But it says in verse, 16, or verse 14, it says, One of those listening, listening to Paul was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home, and um, they stayed with her for a while. But the purpose of that, I think, was that um, Lydia, being a, a worshiper of God, but yet it really wasn't until she heard the message from Paul that she really had a relationship with Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, that you can have somebody be a worshiper of God but yet not have a relationship with Jesus? What does that say to me and you today? Can we know God? Can we be a worshiper of God but yet really not know Jesus? It wasn't until Paul spoke to her and then the Lord opened her heart. Basically, the Holy Spirit then came to her and opened her heart and said, Lydia, there's more to being a worshiper of God than just being a worshiper of God. There's a this, there's this son named Jesus, and Jesus will take you into the presence of God. And that was important, and that's something that I think that we should consider as well as we continue to think about this, that it's more than just having a knowledge. It's having a relationship with Jesus, and that's what, that's what we're all about. That's what our whole ministry is about here, is having a relationship with Jesus. Now, this church... This church is known as the indulged church or the pagan church or the word that I think really covers it better is or the, they, they were known as the compromised church. And we're going to see that in a minute, why that it came down through history as the church of compromise. The description of Christ, looking at verse, continue with verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus describes himself here as the Son of God. 
The Son of God. What does that mean? This is declaring Jesus, his own position in relationship with God as the Son of God, of divine nature. He was not just a good man. He was the Son of God, and he had the authority of God. Jesus declared himself there that. He also declared himself or shown that he has eyes like blazing fire, and consistent with other uh, descriptions of Jesus to the past churches or the other churches, that this, his eyesight goes beyond the natural, goes beyond what we see. It goes into the heart of men. That Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire. It goes deeper, and it be, it's able to see through the deceptive spirit of the enemy and the deception of a man's heart. Jesus really sees our hearts for the good and for the bad, right? For the good, he sees that too, which is good. We thank the Lord for that. And we, we need to also thank him for the fact that he sees everything, that nothing, is, nothing escapes him. His feet are like burnished bronze or brass. Burnished bronze at the time of the writing of this was the strongest, most stable metal they, they had. So therefore, what the writer is signifying here is, is that his feet are immovable, unchangeable. He is strong. Nothing is going to move him. He's a mountain of justice. Nothing is going to move Jesus. Nothing is going to move him. He is unchangeable. And that's something that we all need to be thankful for. I'm thankful that my God is unchangeable. I'm thankful that he's so big, nothing can change him. Aren't you? Isn't that good to know that our God is that strong? The condition of the church at that time, he goes on in verse 19. Jesus again says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. Okay, once again, consistent with the nature of Jesus, he sees the deeds of his people. And he likes to tell people that they're doing well. When they're doing well, he wants to make sure that, th that they know it and that they appreciate the fact that he appreciates the fact that they're doing well. But in so many ways, though, isn't that what we're supposed to be? I mean, <laughs> I guess when I, when I read this and when I was studying this, the thought that came to me was... Uh, yeah, I appreciate the fact that Jesus sees my good. But in all honesty, as a Christian, isn't that what he's supposed to see? I mean, do I really need to be patted on the back every time I do something good? <laughs> do I need that uh, assurance to say, hey, good job, you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, you're loving people, you're consistent, you're holy, you're living a good life. And in all honesty, if you weren't living a good life, if you weren't living holy, if you weren't doing everything that... I'm describing you as, then you wouldn't be a Christian to begin with. So for the fact that he's acknowledging my good is really just a, a common occurrence to me. I shouldn't, have to, I shouldn't have to need that. But yet it's good and we, we appreciate the fact that Jesus sees our love and our faith. And, those are, and that faith is proven through works. It's proven through works. It's proven that we are going to do things. And he says that we are actually, or they are actually doing more at the end than they were at the beginning. This shouldn't be a surprise because faith and deeds go together. Go together. Faith and action goes together as we read in, chapter, in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James tells us very clearly that our action and our faith must work together. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds or actions? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, there was some discussion in the early church between James and Paul. When you read the book of Romans, you will see that Romans talks mostly about you're just saved by faith. James brings in this thing called works. Not in a way to confuse anyone to say that you're saved by works, but to prove the fact that because you're saved, your works will come along as proof of your faith. They have to work together. One without the other is of non-value, no value. I, I can have all the faith in the world, but if I don't have any action, then what proves my faith? And the same, and the other thing, I can have lots of action, but if, if I don't have faith in Jesus, then my action is just action. So they work together. So one, I'm not saved by my works, but my works are a condition or a, a, a byproduct of my salvation. We all know that, right? This is not a surprise to any of us. We've talked about this in the past, and that we, one follows the other. And that's what this is. This is the fruit of a maturing Christian person. The fruit says of a, of a person that is maturing in Christ that I want to serve people. We, we talked about this a little bit last week and that the mature Christian, when you're coming into church, the mature Christian's perspective is, should be, I'm excited about coming into church today because I want to know who can I serve today? Who can I bless today? Who can I touch today with my deeds, with my works, who can I bless is the process of maturing. Whereas there are some people that come in, and this is perfectly fine too because this is what church is about. There are times that you come in hurting and there are times where you need to be touched. So thank goodness that there are mature Christians around that see the need and that can discern your life, who you are, and that are, are so close to Jesus and the Holy Spirit touches them to say, pray for this person. Or you make your way to the front and we pray for you and we are being the hands of Jesus. We're being the love of Christ as we then are then touching you and are, and are, are assisting the, whole, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit through our actions, through our hands, through our feet. It's important they come together. So the body of Christ is made up of those that are willing to serve people. Going back to Revelation chapter 2, and looking at the church in Thyatira, and Jesus commends them. That he even says that the latter works are exceeding their former works. In other words, this church is, wasn't known for doing something in the past, but they're still doing it. They're still working in it, and it's good. It's really good. But yet, a Bible teacher, David Hocking, points this out. He says that just because a church is a working church and service-oriented doesn't mean that everything deep down is okay between them and God. Sometimes we can work to cover up a pain, can't we? Sometimes we can work, we can be diligent in our effort, but down deep inside we can really be hurting. Amen? Anybody feel that with me? That you can be so, we can be so busy sometimes that we think our busyness is able to heal us? The only thing that will heal us is the touch of Jesus. Our busyness just compounds it, just compounds the hurt. So I think that Jesus is saying now that I see your busyness, I see your work, I see the ethic, and it's good. But, he says, I have some things against you. And let's read what Jesus says to them. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. 
by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, there's a lot to talk about that we don't have time here to talk truly about Jezebel. But the sin that Jesus sees in this church is that there's a tolerance of a spirit that is among them of compromise and self-indulgence. Therefore, they are known as the church of indulgence or the compromised church because they tolerate a spirit of Jezebel. And um, Jezebel, Jesus calls a false teacher that leads his servants astray by compromising with the worldly culture of the day. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more and how it specifically hit um, with Thyatira. But first, I think we need to talk a little bit more about Jezebel. You see, we, our church today, we're not all unlike the church in Thyatira, where we have a lot of pressures to conform to the world. We have a lot of pressures to, uh, to be of the world. And... Um, we need to stand against that. And, but we need to know truly that the spirit of Jezebel, that spirit of compromise, is alive today. Let, let's talk a little bit about who Jezebel was. You have to go back to First and Second Kings to really get a good understanding of, of Jezebel. Let me read just a little bit in First Kings chapter 16 that will tell us a little bit more about this spirit. Beginning at verse 29. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonites, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab, King Ahab, was a Jew. And he was the king of the Jews, king of Israel. But he was an evil man. And he married this queen, this queen named Jezebel. And Jezebel had a spirit about her that was one of the strongest evil presences, spirits of the day and even of today. And uh, there is a whole lot that we could talk about the spirit of Jezebel. We could go into a long study of that, and I don't have the time to do that today. But I do know that she was evil. This spirit was evil. This Old Testament queen Jezebel, she was a worshiper of Baal, which was a despicable god who required human sacrifices. And she encouraged and led others to do the same. And this way she steered the people of Israel down a path of disobedience uh, toward their true God. And she brought evil and all kinds of destruction into the land. And she was able to do this because she had the influence, she influenced her husband Ahab. So King Ahab and Jezebel kind of worked tandem. Not a good situation at all. So there's a lot more to talk about that. I, I guess what I want to just say that is that the Jezebel spirit is a very strong, deceptive, compromising spirit. And that's the problem that Jesus had with the church of Thyatira was that they tolerated that kind of spirit in their church. And I think that churches today tolerate that same spirit. 
And I think that Jesus is saying some of the same things to us. Uh, I see your works. I see your good deeds, but yet you tolerate this spirit of compromise. Um, specifically in that day, I said before that uh, Thyatira was a uh, city of, of, uh, of a blue-collar city, a lot of labor unions, and they were a manufacturing city, and they had these uh, trade guilds, and they had a strong dominion over top of their workers. In other words, they controlled their workers significantly. If you didn't go to some of the union dinners or some of the things that you would have to do to participate, you couldn't work. You had a union dues basically to pay. A lot of it was through your actions. And so Jezebel was very heavily encouraged all of the workers there, Christian or non-Christian, to make sure you went to these functions. And when you were in these functions, quite, awfully, quite often there was sexual immorality and, and heavy um, idol worship. And so to be active in your particular trade, you had to go to these functions. And once you got to these functions, the temptations were very strong for the people of Israel, the Christian people at the time, to give in to the temptations of Jezebel. Therefore, that she enticed them into sexual immorality and idol worship and eating the food sacrificed to idols. So there was a reason for Jesus to say these things because it was happening and he was seeing it happen. And so therefore he was trying to bring a sense of encouragement to those believers there to say you don't have to do that. In fact, just because culture says you are to do that, there is even more reason not to do that, right? Not to fall into that nature of, the, of compromise. And this spirit so, so dominated them that they were struggling with their standing up for who Jesus was because they were being dominated by the spirit of, of deception, the spirit of compromise, the spirit of control that Jezebel would brought into their heart. And often I think that we see that same spirit of cultural relativity today. Uh, do you see it? I'm sure you see it. I, I think it's very obvious around us that that there is a, a spirit of compromise with the world so that, so that we can still call ourselves Christians and yet, and yet we won't do things that would lose our standing in the community. That we, uh, we would still be with the in people. That we wouldn't set ourselves apart so much that those that are, are politically astute, that we would still be in their good graces. That we don't have to give up being popular. We, we want the popularity as well as we want the Christianity, but that's the sin that was happening in Thyatira, was they were willing to uh, give up some of the things that would put them in the standing in the political world to say, no, I'm going to stand for Jesus instead. And isn't that so much what we are today? Do we not see that? Do we not see the pressure in our jobs and at school, guys, that we will justify doing whatever we have to sometimes in the guise of our career path, that we will, we will be willing to compromise godly principles because that's the only way I can get above, the only way I get that promotion, the only way I can keep that boyfriend or that girlfriend, the only way I can do whatever is necessary to keep my standing in the world, but yet I have this political pull towards the world, but it's not godly. And this is the spirit of Jezebel that would come in and would would tell you that you have to give in. If you want to be popular, if you want to be in the in crowd, if you want to succeed in this world today, then you have to give in to the spirit of compromise. That's why this church was called the compromising church. And that compromise is still relevant today. 
See, and this may sound maybe a little bit um, confusing because we are to be in the world, right? But we're not to be of the world. Is there a difference between being in and of? Yeah, we're to be in, we're to be relevant to the world. Our mission statement says that we are to be, to be heavenly effective. We must be earthly relevant. We must be relevant to the world. In other words, we must function in our jobs. We must be able to be good students, good workers, good employees, good friends, because that, how else do you win people? You, you have to be relevant to them. You just don't let them control your actions. You still have to stand up in the face of pressures, but yet you're relevant, you're, you're relevant to their world so that we're not uh, making ourselves untouchable or unreachable. It's difficult to do, I know. But yet, when we do that, we're being obedient to the Lord because now we can actually be his hands and feet into a dark world. We can be the light in a dark world if we're willing to do this. But yet, there's so many, that we are such a spirit of compromise around us that, that we see this happening more and more. And we see it in the cultural things around us. You, you know, just look, at, just look at the news. Look at the political structure. Look at the, the um, I don't want to pick on anything because it's all relative here, but I don't want, but, but look at same-sex marriages and, and, and look at the homosexual um, uh, perspective that if, uh, that if we're not recognizing that as a lifestyle, an alternative lifestyle, then, then we're being the bigots. We're being the narrow-minded people. Um, you know, the, the, look at the divorce rates among Christian people. You know, rather than looking at marriage the way God looks at marriage to say, you guys work it out, you know, you're committed, you're two Christian people, work it out. Rather, we will just say, well, you will give in to the spirit of compromise to say, hey, everybody's getting divorced, so why not me? Um, you know, the, the, the strong influence of drinking, the so strong influence of being socially acceptable in the workplace, everybody goes out and has a beer after work, so why not me? You know, I, I mean, there's, there's so many of these little things that come up that bring a spirit of compromise into our life that actually destroys our relevance. It may feel like we're being closer to our workers because we're doing this, but in the, all, but in the end, it's destroying our witness to them because we're not really standing up for anything besides what they're doing. So as we be relevant, you know, go out with them after work. Have a soda, you know, or, or, or go to the ball game. Go golfing with them, but, but don't partake in the things that would, be of not, would not be godly nature. You have to be relevant, but yet you have to be careful. Um, and there's a spirit that's given to us, and if we read it in Isaiah chapter 5, and, and recognize that as the days get closer to the end, which every day takes us one step closer to the end, Isaiah chapter 5 tells us that things are going to get twisted around a little bit. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit, acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. So basically what Isaiah is saying into his own people, that there are people then, and even worse now, that will make right wrong and wrong right. They'll call light dark and dark light. There's a spirit of deception that's upon us called the Jezebel spirit that is convincing us that doing right is wrong and doing wrong is right. Amen? Do you see it? Is it around us? Yeah, amen. It is around us. So what do we do about it? We stand against it. We stand against it. Here's one of the things I think, and we talked a little bit about this last week. 
one of the things I think that, that is hitting us all right between the eyes. And this is not a sin, by the way, but it's the hindrances, I think, that keep us from really accomplishing what God wants us to do. And that is clearly just the busyness of life. I see life getting so busy. It's so busy for all of us that we just don't have time. Amen? I just don't have time to do godly things. I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to come to church. I don't have time to put my action to my faith. Oh, I I pray for people, but boy, if it comes time to actually work for people, I just don't have time. And and I'm not saying this in any way to, to talk bad about people. I'm just seeing it for what it is in that we are such a busy, busy society today. And can we not see that this may be the spirit of Jezebel working on our society to get us going so fast? Maybe we need to go by, maybe we need to be reminded like Tiny Tim that we need to stop and smell the roses. You know, that we need to just slow down a little bit and, uh, and, and let God do something in our life that we wouldn't have to run so fast. And, uh, and sometimes we see the problem here that we don't have time to be, be being in church, and maybe we don't have the time for some of these things is because we're not seeing them in the priority that Jesus is seeing them. You know, as we look at our life the way Jesus looks at us, I think we also need to look at life how Jesus looks at life. We need to look at life the way his, how, how he prioritizes things in life because he prioritizes the things that are eternal we tend to prioritize things that are most immediately to our satisfaction. I may have to give up some things if I'm going to see the way God sees things. I'm going to have to see the eternal the way he does if I'm really going to be effective in my life. And so church is part of that. When I come into church, it's, I need to see it the way Jesus sees it. Jesus, you know, church is a weird thing. We don't really have a whole lot in common with each other here besides one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. Because if you look at the person sitting next to you, assuming that it's not your spouse, you probably don't see them in any other setting throughout the week in your normal business life, do you? But yet we come to church and we're to love them and we're to serve them and we're to be here for them. And when we look at church, when we look at the body of Christ outside of this building as the church, and when we see them the way Jesus sees them, it should give us a different perspective of how we're to service them. And so that I should take the time to service them. And when I recognize that God is about love, God is about a relationship, God's about helping people, that should help me want to service them, to love them, and to help them. And it should be about me being able to slow down a little bit to help my brother and to help my sister. And that I shouldn't be so fast to bypass them thinking, oh, somebody else will do it. Somebody else's job to do that. No, you know what? Maybe it's your job. Maybe God gave you two hands so that you could help that person with one of your hands. Just a thought. See, Jesus is all about coming to a fallen world. The body of Christ is all about servicing a, a, a fallen world. And, and none of this, what we're talking about here, can be done by ourselves. We are a body of people. We are not individuals. We will stand before God as an individual, but right now we are a body of people. He's coming back for a church. He's not coming back for individuals. He's coming back for the bride of Christ. 
the bride of Christ is represented by the body of Christ. But yet, we will stand before God individually. And he will say, how did you fit into my body? How did you work in my body when you were a part of my body? I'm talking to you right now because I'm judging you by what you do, what you've done forever and ever on your actions. But what were your actions about my body? And when we can see God's perspective, when we can see the perspective of Jesus, it will help us to understand that we need to make sure that we're not willing to let that compromising spirit of Jezebel come in and allow me to justify what pleases me over what pleases my Father in heaven. Amen. All right, so what was the command that Jesus gave them? Look at verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, the teaching of Jezebel, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, which is witchcraft and sorcery and all those things, I will not impose any further burden on you, except to hold on to what you've done until I, until what, what you have until I come. There are those in this church right now that are not holding to that compromising spirit. There were those in the church of the time that were not holding. So Jesus said, I see that, and I'm not trying to put more work on those that are working. <laughs> for those that are holding to the path, for those that are holding and doing what Jesus is asking them to do, what he's saying is, I'm not asking you to do it all. I don't want you to do more than what you're already doing. What I'm really hoping and what I'm really praying and what I'm really saying is that everyone else will pick up their pieces so that you're not left doing it all, but you're doing your part as you can do, and I'm happy with that. Jesus never said, I want you to do it all. Jesus said, I just want you to do your part, and I'm happy with that. So if you're doing your part, just continue on doing it and be good in it. The danger here, though, is that if I'm not doing my part and if I'm justifying myself that I am doing my part, do you see the Jezebel spirit comes in of deception? If I'm really not doing what I need to be doing, but yet I tell myself I am, then my faith and my actions aren't coming together. I may have great faith, but no actions. So for those that are doing both, he says, just keep doing that. And don't, don't spread yourself any more thin because you can only do so much. Make sense? Now, for those that can do a little bit more because you haven't done a lot, well, see that. And then come around the body of Christ and let's work together as the body of Christ to be the complete whole body of Christ. What's the consequence of disobedience? Revelation chapter 2, verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. There's always a, comp there's always a consequence for actions, right? We've said this before. There's always a consequence, a good consequence or a poor consequence, depending upon your actions. It, would be, it wouldn't be God if there wouldn't be consequences. So what he's saying here, the outcome of the spirit of compromise, those that compromise with the world, the outcome is spiritual death, which is more dangerous than physical death. Physical death only takes us to the next realm. And if we're living for Jesus, that physical death sets you free. If you're not living for Jesus, that physical death takes you into a spiritual death, which is, uh, which is eternal death punishment and separation from God. So Jesus is patiently calling the compromiser back. He's saying, if you will repent. He's always looking for those that will repent. Always looking for those to repent. So there's never here 
um, anyone here that is outside the scope of repentance. And here's the danger that I see, really, for those that are unwilling to repent. Man, I see generations at risk here. Generations at risk. When it says here that I will strike her children dead, see, it's one thing for you to die. It's another thing for your children to die because of your actions. There's a huge issue here called stumbling blocks that I see that we need to really focus on this morning. We live in an era of grace, and we use that era of grace card quite freely to say that I can do all things. I can do all things because I love Jesus, because I know that I'm mature enough to do all things. But if what I do impacts a younger person, a younger Christian, my child, my grandchild, that would bring them down into a compromising position with the world. What have I really done? That's bringing generational death to children. And that's the thing that scares me the most about, about me, about my actions, about what I do. Why do I do? Am I really willing to risk my child? Or am I better off to be that holy conviction person that makes sure that I explain to my children why I don't do, not legalism, not legalistically, but I'm explaining to the best of my ability to say I do these things or I don't do these things for these consequences. And when I can take the time, get out of my busyness, and take the time to explain and teach and instruct with godly wisdom, then I'm praying that they will get it. That I'm not, it, that I'm not risking their generational life either, spiritually. I think that's probably one of the biggest things we can take from this lesson is that we do not become a stumbling block because of our, because of our freedoms. What's the promise to overcomers? Verse 26, To the one who is, is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash into pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As always, Jesus ends with a mighty promise for those that are faithfully doing and persevering to the end. And what he's saying is here is that for those that persevere, for those that overcome, I will give you authority over all those that have persecuted you today. I will give you the authority over them later. You persevere today, you'll win. You persevere, you work hard, you're diligent, you're holy, you're doing everything according to my will. Even though it may appear to you that you're losing, even though it may appear to you that you're not as successful worldly as they are, don't worry about that. Look beyond that. Look beyond the temporalness of what you have and look into the promise of the future. And as you do, as you persevere, as you are obedient to me to the end, I will make you leaders over them. I will make you rulers over them. And we're talked about that. We've been talking about that in our Wednesday study about uh, the end times and talked about all the things that the saints are going to be able to do in the end over those that are not faithful. And we will win at the end. Jesus says that to those that are victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That's, that's you and I, folks. That's amazing. Jackie, if you'd come, as we can start to wrap this up. I just want to encourage us this morning that we can be victorious. For those here this morning that, that have a choice, and that is all of us this morning, we have a choice. 
about am I going to persevere to the end? Will I really give myself to Jesus? Will I really do, will I really put my faith and action to work? If I do that, his promises are true, that we will persevere. What better outcome could, it ever, could a man ever have than to be with Jesus? And he says that I will give them the morning star. Revelation chapter 22, verse, verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. That's Jesus. And he's willing to give himself to those that are victorious. He's willing to give himself to you and I this morning as we persevere even in the times that are coming. The times that are coming are not going to get any easier. The times that are coming are going to get more compromised. They're going to get more um, destructive. You look around. Just look at what's happening. Look at the Middle East. Look at all the things that are happening. Guys, we are in the middle of it. It's happening all around us. We, history is being made all around us today. And, I, and, and Jesus, is, if he was here this morning, I think his call would be as urgent, more urgent than mine, to say, folks, it's, it's wrapping up. It's, it's ramping up. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. So this, so this morning, as we do conclude here, where do you see the spirit of compromise in our midst? Where do you see it? Where do you see it in your life? Is the Jezebel alive, working in your life? Are we tolerant of this deadly spirit? Yeah. See, I think so many times it's, it's easier here to give a little rather than to hold a line of godly holiness. It's easier to give in, but it's not the best thing to do. It's the thing that would bring us destruction. So personally this morning, where are we? Where are you this morning? Where am I? Where is this church? Are we really holding to the end? Are we going to be the victorious ones? Close your eyes with me if you would. And let's just take the next minute or two and just do some self-evaluation. You see, it's time that we as a church, beginning with me individually and you individually, it's time that we fight for our freedoms our, of standing for God in a holy lifestyle. It's time for us to stand up against society. It's time for us to say no to what God says no to and yes to what he says yes to. It's time for somebody to make a stand. Are you? Am I? Do we want to be known as the compromising church? Do you want to be known when you stand before God as the compromising saint? I don't think so. I think a good prayer for us to pray this morning is that God would reveal the areas in our lives where we may be giving in to the spirit of compromise. I think it's all around us. But how is it happening to me personally? So this morning, I, as we end, uh, let's just pray together and say, Jesus, I, I just pray that you would open my heart like you opened the eyes of Lydia when Paul spoke the gospel message. You see, the gospel is designed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. 
It's designed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. This morning, are we so comfortable in our self-righteousness? Are we so comfortable that this gospel message might afflict us a little bit? If it does, that's good. If you feel the angst in your spirit, that's good. That's the Holy Spirit calling you to saying, I've got more for you personally. I've got more for this church corporately. Father, I just come before you in Jesus' name. And God, I just pray that you would just give us a true look at our heart. Your eyes are like blazing fire. You see us to the very core of who we are. And God, these messages that you give to the churches are not to bring condemnation to the churches, but to bring a spirit of conviction to the churches so that we see things the way you see things. While we have an opportunity to repent, that we would repent and that we would do the things that would make you pleased, that we would put our faith and our action together. So God, I pray that we would just open up our hearts to you that we would invite you to come in and show us the areas of our life where you're pleased and the areas of life where we need to work better and do more and change. Not that we're changing, not that we're working for our salvation, but we're just obedient because we want to be holy, pure, and holy before you. God, we thank you for this. We thank you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us now as we go to our homes. And that, God, that you would give us a great day. That you would show us your love and your mercy to us because you love us so much. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day today.